Welcome to episode 67 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, boozy, beachside baby. Oh my God. Where did that come from? I don't know. I feel like that's your vacay life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, take baby out of it. I don't want anything to do with the baby here. Oh, well, I just like, hey, baby. Hey. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boozy and beachside. Yeah, Ooh. I'll take it. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't ever watch the news. I fucking don't turn it on. I don't give a fuck. Bye, right? Plus the internet. Like, why do I even need to turn the yeah. t- television I like to on? read the news more hey, than watch the just news. forget it. So, but this morning, uh, I was watching, cause I'm at the hotel. So you're like, Oh, TV, turn it on. On the CBS Saturday morning, they had this guy who has a podcast and his, it, the name of the podcast is Sporkful. Sporkful podcast. Oh. And he talks about food, like, right? Food, 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 food. Oh, fun. One of his things, which I thought you would like is, which is his big thing is that there's not a good pasta. Oh. Okay. He wants to make a new pasta, which he has done. And because he says spaghetti, it doesn't hold the sauce. Uh-oh. Uh, it doesn't have enough texture. Uh-oh. Like, there's no pasta this guy likes. That he, so he's going to make his own pasta. He designed his own pasta. Yeah, but what if he had, pasta. like, there's different types of pasta no, that... No, no, like there's order- nothing good enough for this guy. No. This motherfucker decides he's going to make his own pasta, right? And he designs a noodle, and I forgot what they call it, but it's literally a noodle. It's a real thing now. Okay. It's shaped like a, a rainbow, Okay. It's got ridges. So it's like a flat. Okay. So let me try to describe this. It's a flat noodle. Let's say it's two inches long. It's a flat uh-huh. noodle, but it's r- in a rainbow shape. Okay. On the edges of it, it's a ra- It's like a ridge, like rip, like um, a ribbon. Right. Okay. But it holds that shape. So it has what he calls fork ability, oh. which means you can pick it up with the fork. It has sauce ability, I think is what he called it, which means it can hold some sauce mm-hmm. in it, like a little on the There's inside of the, the rainbow. And it's got, um, oh my God, what did he call it? Shit, I'm totally going to forget. But he's coined all these phrases. Some sort of I don't like, like texturability or something. I, I don't like so it. So like you can chew it and it's got, your, you, oh, it's al something, something when you bite into it. Yeah. It's like biteability. I don't know. Girl, girl. Anyway, he created his own pasta. And I was thinking to myself, like I've never How in my life. dare he? I know. Well, here's the other thing. Just like everything else, when you go to the grocery store or any store, you go to get a water bottle. There's 5,000 yes. different kinds. I yes. remember going with my husband once and he's standing there for 10 minutes and I'm like, just have one bottle in two colors. Yeah. Fuck it. That's it. Why is he looking for the straw? No straw. The straw pops out. Do I un- un- unscrew the lid? Like, this is too much. You go and look at pasta. You've got all the choices. There's all the choices and there's plenty of pasta that holds sauce already. <laughs> There's because there's different pastas for different things. I knew you'd have an opinion. About I this. I'm not happy. Uh, listen. How dare and then well, then, then how dare he? Yeah, well then how dare so, he insult thousands uh, oh, of years of here pasta? Comes, here it comes. And this guy's gonna come around and talk about he holds the sauce. The pasta. The give pasta. Me, give me and a P- break. Yeah. So then they go to a restaurant in New York. This husband and wife own this fancy like famous restaurant there. I don't know whatever, and. They try it out and they try, they put the sauce on it. They eat it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's good. I mean, it's what pasta. Are they say? So who gives a fuck? What are they going to say? And then they bring it to a kitchen called Nona's Kitchen, Nana's <gasps> Kitchen, Nana's Kitchen. No, and, uh, no, no. Nona. Yeah. And she cooks it and she's like, yeah, it's good. It's like, but I don't know what reaction he's looking for. Nobody else eats pasta and was like, God damn it. Where's the scoop of sauce that should be on here? Where's the no, ridges? I mean, God, where's the fork give me a ability? Break. You have, when you have a rigatoni, a basic rigatoni with the tube, the sauces gets in the tube. There's Hello. little ridges on the top of a rigatoni. It's Ziti is smooth. Yes. So there's all different. There's uh the orecchietti. What's the one that's the like capa, um, cavara, Is it the one that the curl- cavatelli? Yes. There's the the oh my god. There's the big thick ribbon. One. There's so many different types that you can use. Not Give good me enough. a break. Not good enough. Not good. Give this guy at the Sporkful podcast had to make his own pasta. That's how important it was to him. No, and you know this what? This is just a marketing scheme. And I, I don't want to maybe judge not. People. Sorry, like, sorry, sporkful. But. And, and I know on our last, the end of our last episode, I'm like podcast family. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. You if have, it ain't broke, he, he, don't fix it. He put ten thousand dollars of his own money into starting this. But you know, there's going to be some people that are going to buy it. Oh yeah, and he listen. They they brought us to the factory. They showed us where it's being made. They wow. put show up putting put in the boxes. Like this is a real 
fucking pasta. I mean, they already have the farfalle. There's so many different types of pasta out there. Again, go to the pasta section at the grocery store. I, I, I walk through there. I'm like, oh my God, I there's a the spring. Spaghetti. If you get a spring, the spring pasta, it, the sauce holds in the spring. Tina. What is he doing? Well, he's busy keeping himself busy. Well. And then here's CBS Saturday morning propping this motherfucker up. I don't get it. But I just Why saw that and I thought, up? I thought. Why don't you prop yeah. us up, CBS Sunday morning? Hello. <laughs> Where's my multi-million dollar podcast deal? It's yes. Not, not coming. Anyway, of anybody, I thought of you. And I thought, Tina's not going to like this. <laughs> She's going to be like, who the fuck? <laughs> who is this guy? Yeah. Is he Italian? No. Oh. I was just going to say, and the worst part, I looked at your face when I saw, when I, when you just said it, because I was going to say the worst part is I don't you see a hint of it. Like, it's not even like. Because you know why he'd have a family member who goes, what the fuck who, are you he'd doing? He'd be like, what are you doing? What are you talking what are you doing? about? There's Stop this it. pasta, there's that pasta, there's yeah. this pasta. No. Give me a break. This is a white man who needs to oh, now put his no. stamp He's going to mansplain <laughs> pasta. <laughs> He's going to mansplain pasta That's to the That's the Italians. name of this episode. We haven't even started. We are six minutes in and I'm already writing down mansplain pasta. Oh my God. Because that's the fucking name. It's so, you're right. It's exactly what it is. Oh my God. But let's Why? get started because yes. my story is long and okay. um, girl. So I am going to cover the Keating Five. Oh. Do you know about the Keating Five? Yes, I've heard of this. Okay, so listen, it's a little bit boring in the beginning. I apologize. I'm going to do the best that I can here so it doesn't seem like a complete fucking like boot, like snore fest. But uh, in the 1950s, the government wanted to, wanted, the U.S. government wanted people to buy houses. Yes. They wanted people to have their first home, American dream, blah, blah, blah. Right. So they, they started these savings and loan uh, banks. And so, okay, so uh, think of... Um, George Bailey in oh, This American Life, right? It's a Wonderful Life, yes. It's, it's a Wonderful Life. Yes, sorry. It's a Wonderful Life. I love that movie. Anyway, he works at a savings and loan, right? People yes. put their money in. People yes. borrow money. There's interest rates. Okay, so that's a savings and loan where like your money's going in and the bank's and it's help, money. And it's helping someone else. Yes, and you're reinvesting yes. in the community and they, okay. Correct. We, we got the savings and loan idea, yeah. right? Okay. So we're just going to start with how that started, when it started to fail. Because there was a point where it started to fail in the 70s. So in 1979, the Federal Reserve of the U.S. raised the discount rate that it charged. Now, this is where we're going to get boring with interest rates. I'm really, really sorry, but it kind of leads into how this all started. So, or, or this, this scandal. So they raised the discount rate that it charges members banks from 9.5% to 12% in an effort to reduce inflation. Okay. Okay. So the building of the savings and loan had issued long-term loans at fixed rates that were lower than the interest rates at which they could borrow. So they had already given money out, these savings and loans, and now the Fed's changing their rate. Oh, so no. they're not going to be making as much money, the savings and loans, as they on the interest rates that they had in the past. lent this money out. Yeah. Okay? okay, so that's not good. No, um, in especially addition, if you go in with one idea and now suddenly that yeah, has changed. Right. The term's changing exactly in the middle of it all. Exactly. So in addition, the savings and loans had the, the liability of the deposits, which paid higher interest than the rate at which they could borrow. So then you also, it's, it's a, you loan money out as this bank, but you also have people putting money in as a savings account. Yeah. And when you ask people to put their money there, the reason why is because you let your money sit there, you're going to earn money on the interest. Yes. We're going to put money in if you leave your money with us, yes. right? We're going to pay you interest. Well, that number was high. Okay, so, so they they're, couldn't. They couldn't. Right, they're it. they're they're having to put more interest in. They're not getting as much interest coming into the bank as much as they're putting into the savings account. I don't know if that makes yes. sense. Okay, yeah. so when interest rates at which they could borrow increased, the savings and loans could not attract adequate capital from deposits to savings accounts of members, for instance, and they became insolvent. So these banks started to fall apart because these savings and loans, because the money just wasn't flowing anymore, right? And rather than admit to the insolvency or you know, bankruptcy, some savings and loans took advantage of lax regulatory oversight oh, no. to pursue highly speculative investment strategies. So another thing that they could do is take that money that's in the bank and they could um, do, really make risky decisions with it to try to make the money back, like with stock markets and things yeah, like this. But this is and people's like nobody's watching home. them. Yeah. And this is p other people's money. Yes. 
And there's nobody in the government like watching it because nobody was paying attention really. So these adverse actions also substantially increase the economic losses for the savings and loans than would otherwise have been realized had their insolvency been discovered earlier. So because nobody was watching, they could do it for a lot longer and they lost a lot more money. Wow. Okay. So one extreme example was that of financier Charles Keating, who paid $51 million um, financed through this guy, Michael Milken's junk bond operations for his savings and loan associate Lincoln savings and loan association, which at the time had a negative net worth exceeding $100 million. Wow. So Charles Keating was one of these guys who ran Lincoln. He ran Lincoln savings and loan and he took that money and was making these investments, but it was shitty fucking yes, investments. And, and he lost before anybody noticed he was a hundred million dollars in the fucking hole. Oh my. And back then that's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot today. It's a, oh my God. Forget about it. So the core allegation of the Keating five affair is that Keating, Charles Keating had made contributions of about $1.3 million to various U S senators. And he called on those senators to help him resist U S federal regulators. <gasps> okay. So the five senators are oh, John no. Glenn of Ohio. Oh, the astronaut John Glenn. Yeah. John McCain of Arizona, <gasps> Alan Cranston of California, Dennis D. Concini of Arizona, and Donald Regal of Michigan. All Democrats, wow. except, of course, McCain, who we know is a Republican, yeah. right? So the regulators did back off to later disastrous con- con- consequences. So because these five senators were like, yo, guys, yeah. they did back off. But what happened when they backed <gasps> off is Keating continued and yeah. it got worse and oh, worse and worse. No. Okay, so that was terrible. How could so, they just in good conscience do that? Right. And that's, not so think that's about the gonna, people's yeah. money in in these. I don't even think. Loans. I think. I don't think they had any idea what the fuck this guy Keating was really up to. Okay, he probably so he may, said he maybe, probably downplayed it. Right. They're giving me a hard time. I'm trying to do this thing, and they're like, yeah. "Okay, no problem." Right. right. Well, you know, it's not a big deal. Sen- Senators apparently will get into it. This was not an unusual thing for them to do to say to fe- federal regulator, "Hey, come on, take take it easy. Wow. This guy's constituent." whatever. Now it's an issue, but before it really wasn't right. So beginning in 1985, Edwin Gray, who is the chair of the federal home loan bank board, which I'm going to continue with saying S H L B B. That was the organ, the board feared that the saving industry's risky investment practices were exposing the government's insurance funds to huge losses. Because remember some of this is government money. Okay. So Dang. This guy, Gray, instituted a rule whereby savings associations could hold no more than 10% of their assets in, quote, direct investments, right? And were thus prohibited from taking ownership positions in certain financial entities and instruments. So, okay, yes, you savings and loans, you can take some of your money and you can invest it, but only 10%. Anything more than that is way too risky for all the money that you're sitting in that bank, right? Okay. But, what, know, what does he know, do? Keating's like this, right? He's a bafangu. Yeah. <laughs> My mother used to say that all the time. So Lincoln has become, Lincoln, the Lincoln savings loan, had become burdened with bad debt resulting from its past aggressiveness with the, oh, with the no. investing. And by early 1986, its investment practices were being investigated and audited by the FHLBB in particular, whether it had, and they were investigating whether it had violated these direct investment rules. And Lincoln had directed the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insured accounts into commercial real estate ventures. So they're even taking money that's deposited money oh, no. and, t- and investing it in, sh- in commercial real estate. Bad, 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 yeah. bad. By the end of 1986, the FHL... 1986? Dang, so he's doing this a long time. A long time. So by the end of 1986, the FHLBB had found that Lincoln had $135 million in unreported losses <gasps> and had surpassed the regulated direct investment limits of 600 million <gasps> by 600 million had surpassed wow. the limit surpassed it by 600 million dollars oh tina God. what the fuck 600 million dollars <gasps> so bad 600 million dollars yeah. yeah so keating, how does he get out of this oh please so keating had earlier had earlier taken several measures to oppose gray and the fhlbb including recruiting a study from then private um, economist Alan Greenspan saying that direct investments were not harmful and oh. getting President Ronald Reagan to make a <gasps> recess appointment of a Keating ally, Atlanta real estate developer, Lee Henkel Jr. to an open seat on the FH, 
FHLBB. No. So he's now he's got just people like, on the board. Yes. Instead <laughs> of just saying like, okay, fuck, I'm sorry, uh, let's fix yes. this or whatever, he's now trying to go around. Oh, I'm going to have Alan Greenspan do a study. Who, by the way, another I one. Mean, forget about it. So by 1987, however, Henkel, who was this person put on the board, had resigned upon news of having large loans due to Lincoln. <gasps> like he was fucking involved in all this shit, right? Like wow. he was totally compromised. He can't be on this board. Meanwhile, the Senate had charged control uh, i'm sorry meanwhile the senate had changed control from republican to democratic during the 1986 congressional elections placing several democratic senators in key positions and starting in january 1987 keating staff was putting pressure on cranston who was one of these senators to remove gray from (gasps) any fhlbb discussions regarding lincoln Oh, so they're just, they're going to try to cover it up. Yes. The following month, Keating began large-scale contributions into Cranston's project to increase California's voter registration. And in February 1987, Keating met with Regal, one of the senators, and began contributing to Regal's 1988 re-election campaign. Oh, so I'll give you money, keep your mouth shut, help the pressure, help help me. Yes. It appeared as though... So disgusting. It had appeared as though it had appeared as though the government might seize Lincoln for being insolvent, right? So they were going to come in and just take over yeah. the whole place. I, it, I mean, six hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's beyond insolvent. Yeah. So the investigation was taking a long time, but Keating was asking that Lincoln be given a lenient judgment by the FHLBB so that it could limit its high risk investments and get into the safe what at the time. A home mortgage business, thus allowing oh, the business God. to survive. A letter from audit firm Arthur Young and Company, or Young yeah, Company, bolstered Keating's case that the government investigation was taking a long time. Keating now wanted the five senators to intervene with the FHLBB on his behalf. Right, like go back in. Yeah, I gave out. you money. I helped you out. Yes. Now you help me out. Yes. So in March 1987, Regal was telling Gray, Senator Regal was telling Gray, who ran that FHLBB, that. Quote, some senators out West were very concerned about the way the bank board is regulating Lincoln savings, adding, quote, I think you need to meet with the senators. You'll be getting a call. End quote. <gasps> so Keating and DeConcini were asking McCain to travel to San Francisco to meet with regulators regarding Lincoln savings. But McCain refused. OK. DeConcini told Keating that McCain was nervous about interfering. Keating called McCain a wimp behind his back. And on March 24th, Keating and McCain had a heated, heated, contentious meeting. On April 2nd, 1987. I mean, at least McCain is trying to say, like, I'm not getting involved. He's the only one who really, at the end of this, I got to tell you, I had a lot of respect for. I mean, yeah, he's like, I'm not getting involved. Uh, Please. He sees, he sees. Well, he gets involved, but his, but how it ends, he's, he comes out on top, really. I mean. Well, he realizes that this is messed up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's the only fucking yeah. one. So um, on April 2nd, 1987, a meeting with Gray was held at in D. Caccini's Capitol office with Senators Cranston, Glenn, and McCain also in attendance. The senators requested that no staff be present. So now here's where we're going to put the heat on this guy, Gray, right? D. Caccini started the meeting with a mention of, quote, our friend at Lincoln, end quote. Okay. Gray told the assembled senators that he did not know the particular details of the status of Lincoln Savings and Loan and that the senators would have to go to the bank regulators in France, San Francisco that had oversight jurisdiction for the bank. Gray did not offer to set up a meeting between those regulators and the senators. On April 9th, 1987, a two-hour meeting with three members of the FHLBB San Francisco branch was held again in DeConcini's office to discuss the government's investigation of Lincoln. Present at the meeting were Senators Cranston, DeConcini, Glenn, McCain, and additionally Regal. So wow. all of them are back they're in the room all there now with the regulators. And they're listening and they're like, what's going on? Yeah. So the regulators felt that the meeting was very unusual and that they were being pressured by a united front as the senators presented their reasons for having the meeting. DeConcini began the meeting by saying, quote, we wanted to meet with you because we have determined that potential actions of yours have, could injure a constituent, <gasps> end quote. McCain said, quote, one of our jobs as elected officials is to help constituents in a proper fashion. American Continental Corporation, which is who owned Lincoln Samuels, yeah. is a big employer and important to the local economy. I wouldn't want any special favors for them. I don't want any part of our conversation to be improper, end quote. That's what McCain said. Then Glenn said, quote, to be blunt, you should charge them or get off their backs. <gasps> 
while DeConcini said, quote, what's wrong with this if they're willing to clean up their act? Clean up their act. They're, yeah. they're, they're so far in the hole. Yeah. He also there's said, no, they, they can't clean up their act, no, he which also, is why they're involved. That's why they need to be regulated. <laughs> yes. And then DeConcini also said, it's very unusual for us to have a company that could be out of business by its regulators, end quote. I mean, it should many, be out of okay. business. I could be, but, should be. But how many businesses can just get five senators who, I mean, there are many small businesses. Yeah. There are many people. I, I, you and I couldn't go, Hey, no. uh, senators, uh, come together and, and help me out with this thing. And by the Give way, me a break. Who, it's because they I got would never money. ask that. I would never ask no. that. Right. Okay. The regulators then revealed that Lincoln was under criminal investigation on a variety of serious charges, at which point McCain severed all relations with Keating. Good. McCain's like, what the fuck? Yes. Like, had no fucking idea, right? Um, the San Francisco regulators finished their report in May 1987 and recommended that Lincoln be seized by the government due to unsound lending practices. Mm. Gray, who is the, the chairman of that board, uh, whose time as chair was about to expire, deferred action on the report, saying that his adversarial relationship with Keating would make any action he took seem vindictive and that instead the incoming chair should take over that decision. <gasps> huge mistake wow. you know what's going to happen there right oh, so meanwhile no. meanwhile keating filed a lawsuit against the fhlbb saying that it had leaked confidential information about oh, lincoln give me a break <laughs> the new you have time to sue you you got to get your act together i mean can you just admit something you did wrong yeah. here the new fhlbb chair was m danny wall who was more sympathetic to keating and took no action on the report saying oh, its evidence no. was insufficient. No. All those years of investigating for nothing. Because yeah. now the new chair comes in and is like, no. I mean, where the fuck, Gray? What there's, the fuck? Yeah, but there's got to be, there's no one. I, I don't understand how, how it's just one guy comes in and goes, eh, forget yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Insufficient evidence. So in September 1987, the Lincoln investigation was removed from the San Francisco group. And in May 1988, the FHLBB signed an agreement with Lincoln that included not going ahead with criminal referral to the Department of Justice. Hmm. In July 1988, a new audit of both Lincoln and their owner, American Continental, began in Washington. So now we're going to do this all over again. And Cranston continued intervening on behalf of Keating. This Senator Cranston, after the April 1987 meetings, contacting both Wall, who's the new chair, the board chair, and California state regulators continuing to receive large amounts of donations to the voter registration projects from Keating. So Cranston is still getting money. Yeah. Still intervening, still getting involved, right? Because he's getting all this money from Keating. DeConcini also continued on behalf of Keating, contacting Wall, California state regulators, and the FDIC, advocating approval of a sale of Lincoln as a December 1988 alternative to government seizure. Bank regulators refused to approve the sale of Lincoln. Glenn, too, continued to help Keating after the April 1987 re revelation by setting up a meeting with then-House Majority Leader Jim Wright. So news of the April meetings between the senators and the FHLBB officials first appeared in National Thrift News in September 1987, but was only sporadically covered by the general media for the next year and a half. So like wow. nobody even knew that these things were happening, these meetings were and happening. And then this like kind cared. of little, this little newspaper, because yeah. it's not the New York Times, yeah. it's not some big. And nobody cared. Nobody, you know, it didn't seem like a big deal. In early 1988, the Detroit News ran a story on Regal's participation, because he's from Michigan, when Regal responded to, which Regal responded to on Meet the press by denying and interceding on Lincoln's behalf before returning Keating's campaign contributions back to him. So he's like, no, I didn't do anything. And then he's like by on behind back, like giving Keating all this money back that he had given him for his campaign. Wow. Which is probably really smart. In spring 1988, the Los Angeles Times ran a short piece in their business section, but their political reporters did not follow up on it. Two isolated inside page mentions by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal similar, similarly failed to develop further. As media critic Howard Kurtz would later write, quote, the saga of Charles Keating took years to penetrate the national consciousness, end quote. The potential, the po political fortunes of the centers involved did not suffer at all. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the failure of this Lincoln Samuels, like yeah. the, the complete total impact of like what I, I they. I can't even. Yeah. Believe, so like how. 
how many people? Oh yeah, were a ton. Oh no, 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 it's a lot. So Lincoln stayed in business from mid 1987 to April 1989, and its assets grew from 3.91 billion to 5.46 billion dollars. Wow. During this time, the parent company, American Continental Corporation, was desperate for cash inflow to make up for the losses in real estate purchases and projects. So Lincoln's branch managers and tellers convinced customers to replace their federally insured certificates of deposit with higher yielding bond certificates of American Continental. Mm. The customers later said that they were never properly informed that the bonds were uninsured and very risky given the state of American Continental's finances. Can you imagine being a teller at these fucking banks oh my God. and these hardworking people are coming in to put money in and uh. they're like, oh, because your deposits at, a, yes. at an FDIC bank are covered. If yes. something happens, you are insured. Yes, they're insured. And these people are like, you know, do this. Oh my Risk your- God. Holy fuck, dude. No, no, it's terrible. Really it's terrible. Bad. Because they, they, their trust has just been completely, like they have trusted this institution yeah. to protect their money, to do what's right. And... It's bad. And now, the, what, they have nothing? Yeah. I mean, that, they that's, lose it. I know. And, and for people who imagine, like, don't make a lot of money, what the hell? I know. Oh, my God. So the regulators had already concluded the bonds to have no solvent backing. <gasps> mm. So FDIC Chair L. William Seidman would later write that Lincoln's push to get depositors to switch from but one of the most heart was quote one of the most heartless and cruel frauds in modern memory. Oh end my quote. god! American Continental went bankrupt in April 1989, and Lincoln was seized by the FHLBB on April 14th, 1989. About 23,000 customers were left with worthless bonds. <gasps> 23,000 people. Yeah, many investors, often living in California retirement communities, oh lost their life god. savings and felt emotional damage for having been duped on top of their financial devastation. Oh my God. The total bondholder loss came to between $250 million and $288 million. <sighs> the federal government was eventually liable for $3.4 billion to cover Lincoln's losses when Good. it seized the institution. Keating was hit with a $1.1 billion fraud and racketeering action filed against him by the regulators. In talking to reporters in April, Keating said, quote, one question among many raised in recent weeks had to do with whether my financial support in any way influenced several political figures to take up my cause. I want to say in the most forceful way I can, I certainly hope so. Oh. <laughs> Ego. What a prick, right? Yeah. In the wake of the Lincoln failure, former FHLBB chair Gray went public about all five of the senator's assistance to Keating in the Dang. May 21st, 1989 front page story by John Doherty or Doherty. I don't know how he says it. In the <laughs> Dayton Daily News saying that in the April 1987 meetings, the senators had sought, quote, to directly subvert the regulatory process and, quote, to benefit Keating. Mm. Press attention to the senators began to pick up with a July 1989 Los Angeles Times article about Cranston's role. He's from a, Cal- he's a yeah. California senator. Within a couple of months, Arizona Republic and Washington Post reporters were investigating McCain's relation- personal relationships with Keating. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. So now we get into a Senate investigation. On September 25th, 1989, several Republicans from Ohio filed an ethics complaint against Glenn, charging that he had improperly intervened on Keating's behalf. The initial charges against the five senators were made on um, October 13th, 1989 by Common Cause, a public interest group who asked the U.S. Justice Department and the Senate Ethics Committee to investigate the actions of the senators relative to Lincoln and the contributions received from Keating and whether they violated the rules of the Senate or federal election laws. Mm. But the most public attention came from the House Banking Committee, whose new chair, Henry B. Gonzalez, held 50 hours of hearings into the Lincoln failure and associated events. Wow. By uh, November 1989, the estimated cost of the overall savings and loan crisis had reached $500 billion, and oh the media's God. formally erratic coverage had turned around and became a feeding frenzy. Oh, yeah. They're, that's <laughs> huge. You imagine? Yeah. The Lincoln matter was getting large-scale press attention, and the, five, and the senators became commonly known as the Keating five oh you knew glenn was probably like can oh i God. is there a space shuttle i can get on right now <laughs> can i just go to space by the way i'm gonna tell you a story that josh josh told me when i told him i was doing this story and he i'm gonna ask if i can keep it in there but um i might have to delete it what are you looking at is something wrong Okay. I might have to delete it. I don't know. But he said that he went to Ohio to interview, interview John Glenn. Cause Josh just designs like, um, 
theme parks and stuff. Yes, and he was yes, doing yes, a yes. redesign of the Kennedy Space Center. <gasps> so he goes to Ohio. Josh. I know. He goes to Ohio and he interviews John Glenn and he's asking questions, he's talking to him about like just getting inspiration yes. for like designing it. And he said, I, I, one of these reporters or somebody said to him that the moon landing was, was fake. And he punched the reporter in the face. No. John the fucking, <laughs> I fucking died. I go, that seems like an overreaction. Wow. Like punched him in the face. An old man. Punched I, I, I kind of like that though. Well, I love it because you know like who it. thinks that the moon. Okay. Let's wait, wait. Let's stop. Let's not get into that. But I love that story and I hope that we can keep it in, but I'll ask Josh. I don't know. All right. Anyway, all the senators denied that they had done anything improper okay. in the matter and said Keating's contributions made no difference to their actions. Oh, come on. <laughs> Give me that hundred million. Come I'm going to help you on. with your regulators. Come so the, on. <laughs> the senators initially, the initial defense of their actions rested on Keating being one of their constituents. That's what they all said. McCain said, quote, I have done this kind of thing many, many times. Oh, and really? Quote, and said the Lincoln case. Can we look case, into all those yeah. cases too? And the Lincoln case was, quote, like helping the little lady who didn't get her social security. Oh, oh come on. The little, la- <laughs> the little lady lost all of her money in the, the retirement community. Mm. Come on. <laughs> Tina just fucking fell off the couch. That was so funny. Some of the hired high power Washington lawyers, some of them hired uh, high power Washington lawyers to represent them, including Charles Ruff for, for Glenn and John Dowd for McCain, while others feared that to do so would give their appearance, their political career, careers were in jeopardy. So the Justice Department and the FBI began by investigating possible criminal actions by Keating, but then expanded their inquiries to include the five senators. Good. The FBI soon focused their attention on Cranston because the largest sums of money from Keaton came into Cranston's mm. involved voter registration drives whose tax-exempt status might have been oh, violated. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? It's disgusting. He just loves voter registration, yeah. Tina. Like, he's a huge it's fan. Such, it's such... <laughs> and it's a shame because... You know, these are things that we need. You know, yes. we need funding for these things. And, and, and then people take advantage of that. They manipulate it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not right. No. It doesn't outweigh what, what you're doing. Yeah. So much of the press attention. So let's talk about the relationships between Keating and these five guys, right? So much of the press attention to the Keating five focus on the relationships of each of the senators to Keating. Cranston had received $39,000 from Keating and his associates from, for his 1986 Senate reelection wow. campaign. Furthermore, Keating had donated some $850,000 <gasps> to assorted Groups founded by Cranston Come or on. controlled by him, and another eighty-five thousand dollars to the California Democratic Party. Oh, yeah, little old lady with her little coin purse. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Cranston considered Keating a constituent because Lincoln was based in California. Oh. Okay. DeConcini. He's everybody's constituent. He is. He is. You'll find out. You're going to find that out. So DeConcini had received about $48,000 from Keating and his associates for his 1988 Senate reelection campaign. So when we say associates, that means that people who work at Lincoln Savings right. and Loan, they tell their employees, all of you give $1,000 of your personal money to this candidate. And that's how that's, that's, they get yeah, all their people, all just, that money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for being so insolvent... He's sure throwing a lot of money around to people. Why don't, put that back into, yeah, like trying to fix your problem. Yeah, girl. In September 1989, after the government sued Keating and American Continental for improper improper actions regarding contributions, DeConcini returned the money he had received from him. DeConcini considered Keating a constituent because Mm. Keating lived in Arizona. Oh, my God. And they were also longtime friends. Oh. Glenn had received $34,000 in direct contributions from Keating and his associates for his 1984 presidential campaign, and a political action committee tied to Glenn had received an additional... $200,000. Wow. (laughs) Glenn considered Keating a constituent because one of Keating's other business concerns was headquartered in Ohio. Give me a break. This is so stupid. (laughs) These constituent everywhere, Tina. Yeah. McCain uh, had, and is Glenn a constituent of the moon? I know. Come on. <laughs> Give me a break. It's out of this world, all of this oh stuff. Oh, my God. Listen, listen to this. Look, she's cracking herself up. Oh, my God. McCain and Keating had become personal friends following their initial con- contacts in 1981, and McCain was the only one of the five with close social and personal ties to Keating. Ooh. Like DeConcini, McCain considered Keating a constituent <sighs> since Keating lived in Arizona. Come on. Between 1982 and 87, McCain had received $112,000 in political contributions from Keating and his associates. I mean, that's a lot of money. This is ridiculous. In addition... This is ridiculous. I know. In addition, 
McCain's wife, Cindy McCain, and her father, Jim Hensley, had invested $359,000 in the Fountain Square Project, a Keating shopping center, <gasps> in April 1986, a year before McCain met with his regulator, with the regulators. Mm. McCain, his family, and their babysitter made nine trips at Keating's expense, sometimes aboard Keating's jet. Three of the trips were made during vacations to Keating's Bahamas retreat at Cat K. Oh, okay. McCain. Okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> the, the, little, the little old lady with the coin purse yes. has a retreat in the Bahamas and a jet. Yeah. How about selling all of that mm. and giving people back their money? Yeah. How about that? McCain, this is so disgusting. I know. McCain did not pay Keating in the amount, uh, the amount of $13,433 for some of the trips until years after they were taken when he learned that Keating um, was in trouble over Lincoln. So now oh, he's like, I better oh, start. How much was that plane oh, ride, bitch? Here's, come like, here's a couple grand. Wow. By the way, you know Cindy McCain is like independently a multimillionaire. Like she, she comes from a very wealthy family, the, his wife. So they don't need to be doing all no. this. They don't need to free rides to the Bahamas. Okay, so Regal, who's the one from Michigan, had received some $76,000 from Keating and his associates for his 1988 Senate re-election campaign. Wow. Regal would announce in April 1988 that he was returning the money. Um, Regal's constituency connection to Keating was that Keating's hotel Pontchartrain was located in Michigan. Oh, my God. That's it. <laughs> Come on. But <laughs> Okay. So, so back- just basically... Oh, uh, do an LLC yes. in a bunch of random states and you get to be a constituent yeah. and you can... Now you can have my attention. Yeah. Please. Oh my God. The Senate Ethics Committee investigation began on November 17th, 1989. It focused on all five senators and lasted 22 months with nine months of active investigation and seven weeks of hearings. The committee was composed of... By the way, it's a long time for... That's a long time for an investigation. Yeah. It really is. And it dragged out, right? So, and again, co- money, this wasted money, these yes. investigations yeah. cost. Yeah. The committee was composed of three Democratic senators um, Heflin, Howell Heflin was the chair, David Pryor, Terry Sanford, and three Republican senators. Warren Rudman, Trent Lott, and Jesse Helms. Washington attorney Robert S. Bennett was appointed as special outside counsel to the committee tasked with conducting the investigation. Initially, the committee investigated in private. On September 10th, 1990, Bennett submitted a confidential report, which soon leaked, that recommended that the committee continue its investigation of Cranston, DeConcini, and Regal, but take no action against Glenn and McCain, huh. as there was insufficient evidence to pursue those two. Bennett also recommended that the public ha- hearings be held. Like, this of doesn't course, need to be in private. Of course. Stop the bullshit of trying yes. to protect your Transparency. friends. Transparency. Yeah. Speculation that this would be the decision had already taken place, and both Glenn and McCain were frustrated that the long delay in resolving their cases was damaging their reputations. Eh, you know, uh, you know, you lay down with dogs and get fleas, bro. Yep. Maybe you get one flea and not 50, but you're fucking down wow. there with them. You know what I'm saying? Wow. But I understand what they're saying. Yeah. Like, if I'm going to be cleared, then clear me, and don't drag it out for two fucking right. years. Like, I get it, but... But at the same time, what, you why do you? Yeah, why do you need a favor? You already you got a lot of favors already, and Hello. gave a lot of favors. How was the Bahamas, motherfucker? Yeah. The committee's work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was fun. The committee's work was further made difficult by there being no specific rule that governed the propriety of members intervening with federal regulators. Right, so there was nothing they could really. I mean, it's fucked up. Yeah. By mid October, several Republican senators, including. Former Ethics Committee Chair Ted Stevens of Alaska. Remember I covered Ted Stevens? Yeah. That was a great one. Um, were taking the unusual step of publicly complaining about the Ethics Committee's inaction, saying that it was unfair to Glenn and McCain, that the whole lengthy process was unfair to all five and the political motives might be behind the delays. But let's talk about the the, the 23,000 people or whatever yeah. it was. What about... What about being fair to them? And how can it be politically motivated when there's two, the the, the Senate, the committee is half and half, both parties, and there's four Democrats there, one Republican. Come on, get the fuck out of here. So eventually the committee could not agree on the Bennett recommendation regarding Glenn and McCain and Vice Chair uh, Rudman agreed with Bennett and Chair Heflin. He did not. So on October 23rd, 1990, the committee decided to keep all five senators in the case and schedule public hearings to question them and other witnesses. These hearings would take place from November 15th through January 16th, 1991. They were held in the Hart Senate office building's largest hearing room, and they were broadcast in their, in their entirety, entirety on C-SPAN with other programs like picking up segments of the testimony. 
At the openings of the hearings, the Washington Post would later write, quote, the senators sat sourly alongside one another in a long row, a visual suggestive of co-defendants in a rogue's docket. Oh, my God. (laughs) Boo-hoo. Boo-hoo. Overall, McCain would later write, quote, the hearings were a public humiliation, end quote. Good. The committee reported on the other four senators in February 1991, um but delayed its final report on Cranston until November 1991. A delay was also caused when Pryor, one of the guys, uh, Pryor, who was uh, on the committee, suffered a heart attack in April 1991 and was replaced by on the committee by Jeff Bingaman. But Bingaman spent months learning the complex materials involved in the matter only to resign in July due to a conflict of interest. Like, oh, I think my he had God. A, a loan or something. My God. <laughs> so anyway, Pryor ends up coming back, and then the committee's reports like go one by one. So let's just go through how they reprimanded these guys. So Cranston was reprimanded. Okay. He was the worst of them, right? Okay. The Senate ethics committee ruled that Cranston had acted improperly by interfering with the investigation by FHLBB. He had received more than a million dollars from Keating, including the 850, 850,000 to voter registration groups. And, um, he had done more arm twisting than the other senators on Keating's behalf. And he was not, he was the only member Senator of, only senator officially rebuked by the Senate in this matter. Cranston was given the harshest penalty of all five senators. In November 1991, the Senate Ethics Committee voted unanimously to reprimand Cranston instead of the more severe measure that was under consideration, which is censure by the full Senate. Mm-hmm. So ex- extenuating circumstance, circumstances that helped to save Cranston from censure included the fact that he was suffering from cancer and that he had decided to not seek re-election, said the chair, the Heflin said that. Okay. Well, he's got cancer. He's not going to come back. Fuck, well, not, why, why censure the guy? Give me a break. Although they might lose things. Maybe they lose health insurance. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So the ethics committee took the unusual step of delivering its reprimand to Cranston during a formal session of the full Senate with almost all 100 senators present. Cranston was not accused of breaking any specific laws or rules, but of violating standards that Heflin said, quote, do not permit official actions to be linked with fundraising. Although the ethics committee stated no evidence was presented to the committee that Senator Cranston ever agreed to help Mr. Keating in return for the contribution, the uh, conduct had been improper and repugnant, deserving of the fullest, strongest, and most severe sanction, which the committee authority to for them to impose. Um, The sanction was in these words, quote, the Senate Select Committee on Ethics on behalf of of, and in the name of the United States Senate does hereby strongly and severely reprimand Senator Alan Cranston, end quote. The Senate reprimanded Cranston. He took to the Senate floor to deny key charges against him. So he's still, right? To the end. To the end. end. Deny, 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 deny. Yeah. In response, Rudman charged that Cranston's response to the reprimand was, quote, arrogant, unrepentant, and a smear on the institution. Like, fuck off, you motherfucker. Then Alan Dershowitz, who's another piece of shit, (laughs) he's Cranston's attorney in this. Then he says, quote, uh, he alleged that the other senators had merely been better at, quote, covering their tracks, end quote. So basically, yeah, this guy's guilty, but these other guys were better. Cranston just can't cover his tracks. So what the fuck are you? It doesn't Uh, matter. So you're still bad. It's so fucked up. So, so Sen- we have to give you a break because you're stupid and oh can't cover God. things up as well as the other one? That's the, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so Senator Regal and DeConcini, they were criticized for acting improperly. So the Senate Ethics Committee ruled that Regal and DeConcini had acted improperly by interfering with the investigation. Specifically, it said that even though neither of them violated any Senate rule, their conduct, quote, gave the appearance of being improper, end quote. They need to up these Senate rules already. Yeah. yeah. DeConcini <laughs> was especially faulted for having taken the lead in the two meetings with the FHLBB after the ruling Regal expressed contrition saying quote I certainly regret and accept responsibility for the actions that lend themselves to an appearance of a conflict of interest oh I love that can you imagine an appearance of it I feel bad that it appears yeah, that I may have I done. Do it. I'm sorry it looks that way on DeConcini God, I love however, language so much DeConcini <laughs> however said he would continue to be quote aggressive in representing his constituents his constituents in their affairs with federal regulators oh <laughs> oh <laughs> but no one's gonna say oh my goodbye God. I should not be in this role anymore yeah. can Come you believe on. this can you believe this 
So Glenn and McCain, they were cleared of all impropriety but criticized for poor judgment. The Senate Ethics Committee ruled that the involvement of Glenn in the scheme was minimal and the charges against him were dropped. He was only criticized by the committee for, quote, poor judgment. The Ethics Committee ruled that the involvement of McCain in the scheme was also minimal and he, too, was cleared of all charges against him. It's it's not right. McCain was criticized by the committee for exercising, quote, poor judgment when he met with the federal regulators on Keating's behalf. The report also said that McCain's Quote, actions were not improper nor attended attended with gross negligence and did not reach the level of requiring institutional action against him. Senator McCain has violated no law of the United States or specific rule of the United States Senate, end quote. Come on. Ke- I know. On his Keating 5 experience, McCain said, quote, the appearance of it was wrong. It's a wrong appearance when a group of senators appear in a meeting with a group of regulators because it conveys the impression of undue and improper influence and it was the wrong thing to do, end quote. Okay. okay, but Thank still, you. but still the use that they're all appearance, using appearance and how things appear. Yeah. And the thing that this guy then ran later on yeah. for president, <laughs> it's, 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 well, it was, you know, it's years. Listen, Tina, I know two years later is, that is a memory. No, I know, but it's just like, wow, come on. I know. So regardless, but you have no shame. I know. To think that this might be brought up. It, it, you know what I mean? Like there's no. I, no, of course not. It. So regardless of the level of their involvement, both centers were greatly affected by it. McCain would write in 2002 that, uh, that attending the two April 1987 meetings were, quote, the worst mistake of my life, end quote. Glenn but later, is it a mistake because you got caught or is it a mistake? Because he was humiliated. You know, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, Glenn later described the Senate Ethics Committee investigation as the low point of his life. The Senate Ethics Committee did not pursue, for lack of jurisdiction, any possible ethics breaches in McCain's <laughs> delayed reimbursements to Keating for trips at the at the later's expense or latter's expense because they occurred while McCain was in the house. So the Senate's like, well, he got those trips when he was a house member. Oh, so we're not going to investigate it. Then, so then the House Committee on Standards of Official Conduct said that it too lacked jurisdiction because McCain was no longer in the house. So oh, he's not here anymore. Yeah. So we can't, so he's, yeah. no one's going give, after give him. Give me a break. That's fucking like, That doesn't make any Passing sense. Passing the buck back and yeah. forth. Oh my God. Um, it did, it said it did require that McCain amend his existing financial disclosure forms for his house years on the grounds that McCain had now fully reimbursed Keating's company. So, okay. Aftermath, really quick wrap up. Keating and Lincoln's, Lincoln savings became convenient symbols for arguments about what had gone wrong in America's financial system and society and were featured in popular cultural references. The senators did not escape infamy either. Um, by spring 1992, a deck of playing cards was being marketed. Tina talks about making playing cards all the time. I know. Uh, it was being marketed called, quote, the savings and loan scandal, end Ooh. quote, that featured um, on their face, Charles Keating holding up his hand with images of the five centers portrayed as puppets on his fingers. Polls showed that most Americans believe the actions of the Keating five were typical of Congress as a whole. That's a problem. Yes. That's why you hold them accountable. And we still, and we still think that you let them, you, when you then have an investigation and you let them go, you let them go. Now everybody thinks you're in on it. So the whole Congress are fucking criminals, right? Political historian, historian Lewis Gold Gould would later echo this sentiment as well as Cranston's attorney Dershowitz's argument writing that quote, the real problem for the Keating three, which were those, the one were the most involved that they were, had been, that they had been caught, right? Like that was the problem. They didn't think they did anything wrong. It was just that they were caught doing it. Yeah. McCain testified (laughs) against Keating in a civil suit brought by Lincoln bondholders and and was seen as the plaintiff's best witness. The other four senators refused to testify. So McCain's okay, still like... he's trying. Oh, he's on. maybe trying, trying to make, to make up and yes. for it. Okay, and I And when he found out there was criminal charges, he, he was like, I'm out. Yeah. Right? So Cranston left office in 19, January 1993 and died in December 2000. DeConcini and Regal continued to serve in the Senate until their terms expired, but did not seek re-election okay. in 1994. DeConcini was appointed by President Bill Clinton in February 1995 to the Board of Directors of the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. No, are you kidding me? <laughs> Woo! Why? I have the, LOL, Why? bitch. LOL. There's, there's no one else. There is no one else that he could have turned to for this. <laughs> what in the world? The best. I just don't, I the don't best. understand. Um, I don't understand. Glenn did shoot. <laughs> he probably helped Clinton in election oh, in California Yeah, but come right? on. Like, Clinton, come or, on. Uh, uh, Arizona. Ar- 
Uh, so Glenn did choose to run for re-election in 1992, trying to become the first senator to win a fourth term from Ohio. The Republican candidate, Lieutenant Governor R. Michael DeWine, attacked Glenn on the Keating Five, as well as a number of other matters, in one of the dirtiest campaigns in the country that wow. year and the toughest of Glenn's senatorial contests. Glenn did win, however, <laughs> to gain one more term in the Senate before retiring and not running for re-election in 98. After, the 1990, after 1999, the only member of the Keating Five remained Five remaining in the U.S. Senate was, of course, John McCain, yeah. the Maverick, who had an easier time gaining re-election in 1992 than he had anticipated. Um, he survived oh, the political goodness. scandal in part by becoming a becoming friendly with the political press. Right, like he was he was yeah. working it. McCain subsequently ran for president in 2000, like you mentioned, and became the Republican presidential nominee in 2008. Unfortunately, he ran against. The remarkable, the remarkable and the handsome and the fa- oh. fucking fantastic. Barack Obama. Obama. Uh, the scandal was followed by a number of attempts to adopt a campaign finance reform spearheaded by U.S. Senator David Boren, but most attempts died in committee. So mm. they're trying to fix this, right? A weekend reformed reform passed in 1993. Substantial campaign finance reform was not passed until the adoption of the McCain-Feingold Act in 2002. Bennett would later write that the Keating Five investigation did make a difference as members of Congress were afterward far less likely to intercede with federal investigations on behalf of con- con- contributors. Less likely. not It didn't stop anybody, but they're less no. likely to do it. That's nice. Isn't that incredible? That is... It, it just is remarkable that there's it's always a slap on the wrist yeah and they yeah. remain in office mm-hmm. that they continue to run and people just reelect them and meanwhile th- there's people who who suffered because of this yeah and there's not en- there's not enough remorse for it at all it's it's unbelievable <sighs> i know Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you are a history nerd, or even if you are a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. That's things like how Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge and was able to escape the car but left a woman inside to die and didn't report it until a day later. Or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he never existed. Or how the FBI had a file on Frank Sinatra that was 2,000 pages long. Or even how on opening day at Disneyland, it was so hot and the pavement had been so recently poured that women's heels sunk into it. And we do all of this while drinking a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's episode. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hashtag history can be found on all major podcast platforms, and that's hashtag spelled out, hashtag history. We can also be found on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of former Burleigh County Sheriff and Republican committee man from North Dakota, Alexander McKenzie. Nice. Alexander McKenzie served as sheriff of Burleigh County, North Dakota from 1874 Mm. to 1886 and committee man from North Dakota for 21 years. But when tasked to monitor gold mines in Alaska, his greed for gold took hold as he took over full production of the mines for his own profit. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So though our story's antagonist fares from North Dakota, his crimes take place in Alaska. And Alaska, I feel like we've done some stuff out of Alaska. I just always think of Into the Wild, and I'm sure I've talked about that before with um, uh, McCandless, but we don't have this quest for self-discovery. We have a quest for treasure in this story. Yeah. So before I go into details about the crime, I'm going to offer background on Alexander McKenzie. Okay. So as I noted earlier, McKenzie started his career in law enforcement And a biography that I found from a North Dakota studies page offered insight into the type of man McKenzie was. The bio explains that he was, quote, a master of deception Mm. and, quote, a keen observer of political processes. 
I just feel like master of deception, very similar to the person you covered in our last episode in episode 66. Mm. And, but just imagine like, that's your legacy. That's, that's how you're remembered as yeah. a master of deception. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, there's probably worse ways to be remembered, but yes, but it's, I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> as a you master remember? of deception. Yeah. Well, also. And disguise. Yes. And disguise. intrigue. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 007. Yes. A woman mm. of mystery. Yes. So the article <laughs> also notes he was a pretty imposing guy. He stood at six foot tall. He weighed 220 pounds, mm. which helped him in his role as sheriff. Yeah. And according to a 1949 thesis by Kenneth J. Carey that was submitted to the University of North Dakota, one person described Mackenzie as having, quote, Florid features, a splendid physique, wears a blonde mustache, and is decidedly handsome. Mm. So this is the description of our like of our sheriff. Yes, it's like hey, I, of course he has a mustache. Hey. I could have told you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking good. <laughs> and in political, uh, in terms of political power, Mackenzie was this powerhouse, and he was known as a political boss mm. who essentially picked the folks who would run for particular seats. And that was for the, the U.S. House wow. out of North Dakota, the Senate, state seats, even governor. So he was really, really powerful. Dang. And in a lengthy tale that I'm not going to go into mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. Mackenzie is also responsible for making Bismarck the capital of the state. Wow. He had, you know, deals with like railroads and all of that stuff. He was really instrumental in how North Dakota developed as wow. a state. So... He was first appointed sheriff after the current sheriff at the time, it was a sheriff Miller, drowned in a river. Oh my so God. there was this accident and the sheriff, the deputy sheriff were in like a horse and buggy and going across the river, the horses and both of them were trapped in there. Oh the, my like, God. Like the horses were dead too, like everything. Jesus. So um, what happens is after they find that, they have to appoint a new sheriff mm -hmm. and McKenzie is appointed sheriff. But then he's reelected five more times after that. Wow. So he's sheriff a long time. And Carrie notes that McKenzie also served as United States Marshal mm. for 12 years as well, the same time that he is serving as sheriff. All right. So this all reminds me of Deadwood so much. Yeah. Mm. So the major incident. Okay. In 1900, McKenzie, among others, got permission to take possession of gold mines in Alaska. But the way that he did this was pretty nefarious. And that's the that's what happens. There's a ton of gold in Alaska mines at this time. And Scandinavians, not Americans, were reaping the benefits of that. And according to a Bismarck Tribune article, the Scandinavians, they were like, I think like uh, herding maybe reindeer or things like that out there. And they went there looking for gold and they staked claims like we talked about in previous stories they go they stake a claim they start mining for gold and they're finding gold and they're making money out right, of it right and this was happening in the Nome Alaska area and the article goes on to say that a lot of people got pissed off that these foreigners right were making money from American soil mm. but at the time there was an act from 1884 that allowed people to buy and sell land in Alaska and you didn't have to be, you know, American to do so. Mm -hmm. So McKenzie, who's this savvy guy who has a lot of political pull, he knows that he's got to get around that act, right? Mm. How do we get around this act? It's a saying that people can do that. So what he does is he tries to get a bill pushed forward through the Senate and it was Senate Bill 3919 that would say that aliens... Uh, could no longer put claims on land and therefore no longer have access or lay claim to the gold mines there. Oh my gosh. Right? So that's how he's going to try to basically steal from the Scandinavians that are having and running mines there. Right. And he, remember, he's from North Dakota. Right. But they're hearing about, you know, everyone's hearing about like making money. Like there's of gold course. in them there hills, you know, like <laughs> yeah. we, we want to go get that money. Yeah. So the bill fails to pass. Undaunted, McKenzie takes another route. He decides, hey, I know a bunch of folks. I have a direct line to President McKinley. Mm. Maybe he can help me out. Oh, my God. And I mean, he does. Whoa! And he does. McKin McKenzie, according to the Bismarck Tribune article, puts his familiars in some cush positions in the first district of Alaska through McKinley. Okay. So he's like, we need to appoint some people in these uh, places in Alaska so that he now has the political connections right. in Alaska. Right. 
And one of those cities where he has that done is Nome, Alaska, where those mm. gold mines are, which is very convenient. Yeah. So he has his folks in place, but he's not finished yet. He has to sort of up the ante and go. he goes all in and he creates a mining company, right? So he puts together, he gets $15 million of stock. And I'm not sure how he pulled that piece off, but he rolls into Alaska with this Alaskan mining company, right? That mm. now he has created and he gets the titles because now the people who uh, are in political positions, he's able to go to them and get the titles to the mines. Then he shows up at the mines with official paperwork saying, hey, I have this mining company and we now own these mines. Dang. And there's miners there working like, wait, no, no, these are our mines. And they roll in and they just start taking gold. Holy cow. Like just stealing gold out oh of the mine. God. And he's putting gold in safety deposit boxes. Like they're just oh taking my God. gold. Which is like crazy. So the miners flip the hell out because they're like, this is our gold. Which I would imagine like this would be a huge thing. Like that's I mean, a lot of money. I mean. So this battle for the mines ensues. Can you imagine like you own this mine, workers are working this mine, and then these people roll up and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this is ours now. Oh my gosh. And you, and like, how do you fight Nothing, that? Nothing, you can't. So. The guy's got McKinley in his I back know, pocket. I know, And he's from North Dakota. Like, they're probably like, what the hell? Like, you're rolling yeah. in from North Who Dakota. We've been yes. here. And now you own this mine. Oh my God. So the Ninth Court of Appeals gets involved. And the Ninth Court of Appeals was out of California. So I'm not sure how that worked back then that California was able to sort of have a stay in all of this, this mm -hmm. court, but they did. And it's, they tell McKenzie, you got to cut it out. You need to stop taking gold. Like this, this isn't your mind. You cannot keep taking gold. Okay. He refuses. Oh he's my, oh still my taking God. gold out of the mind. Of course. And History News Network's Paul uh, Star Robbins article gives more insight on the scheme. His plan was to deposit the assets of the gold into a shell company. Okay. Then he was going to sell stock from that company, right? So he's got the shell company, He's in, and then he's selling that stock to people who don't know really what's going on. Mm. And that's like the scam, and he wow. gets arrested. Jesus. So basically the main charge that he is charged with is contempt of court because – He's refusing to comply with what the Ninth Court of Appeals asked him to do, which was right. get out of the mines yes. and return all of that gold to those people. Oh, my God. And they find gold, like like I said, um, in safety deposit boxes and like this. So he's also like profiting from this, too. Jesus. And you, you know, know how much like money that is. You know how much money? money. Just imagine bar gold. No, just, I mean, it's crazy. I guess just a chunk of gold, like a handful. Like it's, you're done. That's wild. just leave. That's it. So he gets sentenced to 12 months for two counts of contempt of court mm. and the aftermath. So one thing that the History News Network noted was that, and I thought this was kind of cool, I guess, this is kind of moving out of that Gilded Age into the Progressive Era, which is sort of starts shortly after this, because the way that McKinsey had power was he was able to appoint, like help get people appointed. Mm -hmm. And um, prior to the Progressive Era, Senators, how they got put into a position is different than how they were put into position uh, today. So today, namely, it's through popular elections. So mm -hmm. someone's like, like McKinsey wouldn't have as much political pull. Originally, state legislators who citizens would vote for would choose the U.S. senators. Yes. Right? This is like what, what, what we just talked about yes. with, with nipple. Yeah, with nipple. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, that's how McKinsey had all of that power because wow. he would make sure like he, we have these state, uh, legislators and now they can like manipulate who's getting into certain positions smart, and, though, smart, yeah. sneaky, but smart. Yes. So some points of interest, the North Dakota studies article stated that after McKenzie died, his kids found out that he had an entire other family. Oh, <laughs> so that's wife, a kids, the work that's a like in New York. So he did divorce his first wife that he had children with. But he had never told his family, like, oh, by the way, like, you have half siblings wow. and all that, like, nothing. And so a lot of the articles said he was very secretive. He never talked about his personal life. Like, he, everything was always sort of on the hush-hush with him. So hmm. I thought that was – anyone with a second family, I always find it. Like, how do you yeah. – it's so hard to handle one family. Like, yeah. what are you doing with a second family? Like, <laughs> well, how, he left. I mean, what do you how know? How do you do that? Dang. So – 
He was the first person from North Dakota to receive a presidential pardon for Mm. his crime. So in 1901, then President McKinley pardoned McKenzie after he served only three months of that one-year sentence. Wow! And a little fun fact, one of my sources note that McKenzie threatened to squeal about McKinley's role and everything and possibly other things. And so McKinley's like, yeah, let's just get him out of here. (laughs) Oh my God. We got to shut this guy up. And then the story of Mackenzie's adventures inspired Rex Beach's novel and later a movie called The Spoilers. And a chapter in James A. Mishner's uh, Alaska also drew inspiration from Mackenzie's mm. tale. And so it's a little short and sweet, but that's the story of the greedy gold miner from North Dakota, Big Alex McKenzie. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> do you have pictures of him? I do. Woo, I can't wait to see this handsome oh, man. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, and I have a, I found a cool picture of miners um, outside of one of the mines in Nome, nice. Alaska. Yeah, oh so it's a God. nice old timey I love pick. this. Yeah. And that's Story, it. It's a, little, it's a little short, but I love it. Well, mine was super long. It yeah. always seems to kind of work out it's that a nice way. Nice little balance. Yes. Well, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Um. Well, I'm taking my my sweet, adorable, lovely aunt, my Ziadel, called, and uh, I have to take her to I drop her off at church because she wants to go to Palm Sunday, get the palms. Nice. And so she doesn't drive her anything. So oh, I'm going to drop her off and pick her up. And nice. And then she's going to the Gambazan, which is the oh. cemetery tomorrow. Oh. So we are going to pick up flowers for my grandmother because she always goes. Oh. She goes several times, but always uh, Palm Sunday is one of the days that she you know, makes a visit. So we're going to go pick up flowers and nice. then she can go to the Gambazan and see, you know, my grandmother. And there you go. I love this. <laughs> this is a fu- this is nice. Yeah. Oh, Tina. So that's that's the afternoon. Yeah. Well, I'm out. I'm now going to I don't know what. Roller skate, nap. I got to figure it out. Napping is the best. All I know is I am not responsible for another person. (laughs) Except myself, which is so nice. Oh, my goodness. So this has been lovely. Thank you for, by the way, thank you for being here today. I know you had to come all the way downtown, so I really appreciate you doing that. Listen, it's fun. And I'm I'm on vacation for a week, so I don't mind. All right. Well, good. I'm sure I will see you again soon. Yes. All right. Next week then. Yep. Bye. Bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level, Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.